This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Hello, and welcome to Business Breakdowns. I'm your host, Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Today, we'll be diving into Visa. Started in 1958 as a bank AmeriCard credit card program in Fresno, California, Visa then became a nonprofit consortium of banks that operated the Visa network. Over the first few decades of its existence, Visa became the protocol layer that allowed essentially all banks in the world to communicate with one another. In 2007, Visa completed a corporate restructuring that took it public and now boasts a larger market cap than all of the banks that previously owned it as part of the consortium. In this breakdown, we set the stage with the role that Visa plays in the card transaction, describe the lifeblood of Visa revenue, interchange, and then dive into its unique history as a consortium turned multi-hundred billion dollar public business. We then explore Visa's unique moat and network effect, how Visa makes money today, and look at the potential threats from other businesses and macroeconomic forces. Visa is a fascinating business, and I recommend you check out our website at joincolossus.com, where we provide additional articles, books, and podcasts for those that want to keep unpacking the Visa story. To help me break down Visa, I'm joined by Alex Rampell, a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, where he focuses on investing in financial services. Prior to joining Andreessen, Alex co-founded multiple companies, including Affirm and TrialPay, which was acquired by Visa in 2015. Please enjoy this business breakdown of Visa. So Alex, Visa is such a fascinating business because, well, I think literally everyone listening will know the name or have used the product. Probably some tiny percentage will have any idea what is going on when they swipe a credit card with Visa emblazed on it. Can you walk us through just to set the scene, what is happening and who the key players are in a single credit card transaction? Because I think that backdrop is really important to everything else we're going to talk about with Visa and its business model. There are actually five parties in a transaction. I'll name the parties and then I'll try to chronologically show how this works. So imagine that I, Alex, am buying a Chipotle burrito. So it's kind of obvious, like I need to give money to Chipotle. But the way that that works is I'm buying it with a Capital One credit card. That's called the issuer. It's called an issuing bank. Capital One's a bank. They gave me a card. The card has a credit line attached to it. Chipotle has a merchant bank. It's also known as an acquiring bank. It's called an acquiring bank because they acquired the merchant. Let's just say that Chipotle uses Bank of America merchant services to go sign up or First Data or one of those. And then there's a network that connects the acquiring bank to the issuing bank. So when I go swipe, if I buy my $10 burrito at Chipotle, what happens is Chipotle swipes that card. It goes to the acquiring bank. So call it Bank of American Merchant Services. Bank of American Merchant Services sees, oh, this card starts with a four. That means it's a visa. We got to send that over to visa. If it started with a five, we have to send it to MasterCard, but it's a four, send it over to visa. Visa sees, oh, it's 414720. That's the BIN, bank identification number. The first six of your card actually just identifies the bank. So 414720, if I remember correctly, 
is a chase card. So I guess I've just broke my metaphor here with Capital One, but that means that Visa sends it to the issuing bank Chase. And then Chase says, do we approve this transaction? Yes or no, because the risk is actually being borne, assuming that the customer actually made the transaction. I might not pay Chase back. Maybe I do pay Chase back. That's a credit limit or credit decision that Chase has to make. So there are really five parties involved. And the reason why most people don't really understand the card networks like MasterCard and Visa well is that neither merchants nor consumers actually deal with them. They're simply a router that connect the issuing banks to the acquiring banks. The issuing banks are the ones that own the consumers. The acquiring banks are the ones that own the merchants. Let's say there's a $100 transaction that happens and $3 of that 100 gets sliced up amongst those three players. So I'm paying 100 as a consumer, I lose 100. As a merchant, I'm getting 97. There's $3 left over for the acquiring, the issuing, and the network. How traditionally is that $3 split up? So the vast majority goes to the issuer. And this is actually what's really interesting about, if you think about what is a product in the Visa world or the MasterCard world, a product is effectively an interchange rate. It's very complicated to answer your question because it depends on the type of card. So if I pay with a debit card, it's not anywhere near 3%, unless it's a debit card issued by a small community bank with under $10 billion of assets. But what if I pay with a Visa signature card? So what actually happens, it's a little tangent, but it's relevant to your question. Visa has something called the Visa signature card that comes with a higher interchange rate. And the higher interchange rate is actually used to incent banks to issue that card because then they get to keep more money. The first answer to your question is the vast majority of that goes to the issuing bank. A little bit goes to the acquiring bank, not that much. And then the network, I think on average, like Visa makes about seven and a half cents per transaction. But interchange, which is the interbanking rate between the issuing and the acquiring bank, and that's set by the network. The issuers don't like it when Visa or MasterCard changes that rate. So there is a rate card that you can actually download. If you go to Visa's website, if you go to MasterCard's website, there's a rate card. It's a PDF. It's probably 25 pages long to show you exactly how many rates there are. And depending on like, is it a corporate charge card? What if it's an international transaction? What if it's a gas card? And then what kind of merchant is it? Oh, it's a utility bill. Well, that's different. It's card not present, meaning that you're not actually presenting the piece of plastic in person. It's a card not present transaction, which is entered on the internet or over phone. So there are so many different rates, but the reality is that the issuer gets most of the economics. The issuer uses most of those economics to then, I don't want to say bribe, that's the wrong word, but reward the consumer. And this is why Visa and MasterCard have just such powerful moats. It's kind of a double-sided moat. It's not just a network effect and that everybody uses one of these cards because everybody else accepts that card. I use WhatsApp because my friends use WhatsApp, kind of classic network effect. It also has this very bizarre set of economic incentives where the money that the issuing bank is getting paid rewards the customer. So again, go back to the Chipotle example, but maybe not as relevant for a $10 burrito. I'm buying like a thousand burritos now. So it's going to be a $10,000 bill. If I put this on my city double cashback MasterCard where I get 2% cash back, I'm going to get $200. And if Chipotle doesn't want to spend the 3%, as you mentioned, like they would love it if interchange went away because they would make more money. But how do they induce me to sign up for a new payment mechanism or go pay them with cash? I don't want to go to the bank and withdraw $100 bills and pay them with cash. I'm going to pay them with the city double cash back MasterCard. I get $200. I now have an incentive to use that card wherever possible. Taking another step back, Visa is able to convince 
a bank like Fidelity has a double cashback card, 2% cashback on the Fidelity card is one of their top cards. Fidelity is trying to decide, do I issue a MasterCard or a Visa card? Because this is what Visa and MasterCard really do. They compete for issuing banks because acquirers have to acquire all cards. They just get the merchant and they're going to get, they want to monetize all the merchant's traffic. So they can't just say, we're only going to process Visa cards. We're only going to process MasterCards. They have to process all cards. So what happens is Visa and MasterCard compete over issued contracts. So if they have a higher interchange rate that they're charging to merchants, which merchants hate, of course, they hate paying a higher interchange rate. The issuing banks love it because then the issuing banks are able to go into the market and say, hey, guess what, consumer? Instead of getting 2% cash back, you get 2.5% cash back. And that's not coming out of negative unit economics. The 2.5% cash back is coming because we have this great product that Visa invented to charge merchants 3%. So it's one of these weird things where normally you would expect competition. And there is competition. I mean, Visa and MasterCard, American Express, like it's an oligopoly but it's not just a monopoly where there's only one player. You would expect, at least in that kind of construct, for fees to go down. But outside of regions like Europe or Australia, where regulatory issues have forced down fees, fees go up because that is more compelling for the issuing banks to go get their cards into market and for consumers to use those cards because it's kind of like an intelligence test. Like, okay, you're buying the $10,000 of burritos at Chipotle. Do you want $200 cash back or $10 cash back? Well, I'd rather get $200 cash back. Well, in order for that to work, interchange has to be above 2%. And therefore, if I make interchange 5%, Chipotle will be even more angry. That might be the breaking point for them. But now a new bank can go get me to sign up for that 5% cashback card. And I'm going to use that one at Chipotle as opposed to the 2% cashback card. So I'm thinking about this visual where there's these two nodes on the bottom, the consumer and the merchant. Above each is a bank. They each have their own bank. And then the way those banks communicate is through this centralized network, primarily Visa and MasterCard. And Amex is a whole different beast that we won't tackle in this conversation. So really, this central network is really not a finance company so much as it's an information routing system. It's literally just the communication node through which banks communicate with each other. And it begs the obvious question, which necessarily brings us to Visa's very unique origin story of with this 3% thing hanging out there, why wouldn't the banks just talk directly to one another? So maybe we could rewind all the way back to the beginning and the origin story of Visa, which is uh, among major corporations, certainly one of the most unique, and describe why there's this central player and the banks don't just talk to each other. The first day of Visa, it wasn't called Visa at the time, but it was September 18th, 1958. And what happened was Bank of America, which at the time was a California-only bank, even though we have crazy banking regulation today, it was much crazier in the 1950s. What happened was that there was this mid-level manager at Bank of America, Joe Williams, who came up with this idea for the Bank AmeriCard. And the idea was, okay, let's just go mail 60,000 cards to pretty much everybody in Fresno. I think Fresno had like 250,000 people at the time, 45% of whom or something like that were banked by Bank of America. The way that you're going to solve the chicken and the egg problem is just give everybody a card. They don't even have to apply for it. There aren't that many merchants in town. It's not like there's an internet where you go have to sign up you know, 100,000 merchants in order for this to be relevant. So I think the first merchant that they signed up was Florsheim Shoes, which is still around today. So you got all the merchants signed up. They gave everybody a card. There wasn't interchange, but they said, okay, it's Bank of America, right? Bank of America is talking to both sides. I think the rate was something like 6%. 
But it turned out because they just gave this to everybody. There was no application. They were giving people credit. Like fraud was out of control. Like Joe Williams basically got fired and had to leave. But the idea worked because the problem with most of these network effect businesses is it's like, okay, you either get the chicken or you get the egg. And because Bank of America already had half the customers in the town, I think 250,000 is a pretty large sized town. And it wasn't that hard to just go to Main Street and get all the merchants. You were able to get this off the ground. And then other banks took note of this as well. So if I'm a whatever chemical bank or Chase Manhattan Bank or the banks of the 1950s, I don't want to go issue a Bank AmeriCard. That doesn't make any sense. So basically what happened, I mean, fast forward a few years, but you had all these different banks that were doing these card drops. Card drops were eventually declared illegal. Like you actually you can't just like give people credit and not tell them what they're in for and then <laughs> down to the credit them. Prevent them from getting a mortgage in the future because they didn't pay you back for something that they didn't understand. So the laws kind of clarified a bunch of these things. But what used to happen in the 50s and 60s and 70s is that you might have like 10 cards in your wallet. Only certain cards would work in certain places. And basically what happened was there were two consortiums that developed. There was Master Charge, which was one. And then the Bank AmeriCard became Visa. So there was a set of banks that operated on this Visa network. There was a set of banks that operated on this Master Charge network. Master Charge obviously became MasterCard. And then both of them were nonprofits. And they're nonprofits, not like the Red Cross is a nonprofit. There were nonprofits, the NFL is a nonprofit kind of thing, which is owned by the constituents. And that's how they existed for dozens and dozens of years, where effectively it was a communication protocol, exactly as you said, it was a router and a technology platform for banks to talk to banks. And they owned it. Visa wasn't taking any economics. So, I mean, they would take economics in terms of like they had to pay for software development and whatnot, but it was this nonprofit entity that was controlled by banks. So it was totally fine for this thing to exist. And then what happened, I think it's 13 years ago, is they both went public and they went public, not because it's like, wow, let's seize this opportunity because it's great to be a public company, but it was largely to avoid antitrust scrutiny because once a year, I mean, it's a little more than that, but there was this pricing council. It actually still exists at Visa today. It's like, okay, how much should we charge merchants? Imagine that all the airlines, there were two groups of airlines. There was Star Alliance and whatever the other evil airline alliance is. And they got together and they said, okay, Star Alliance has decided we will charge this much for the London to San Francisco flight. Well, that's called price fixing. You can't do that. So Visa owned by the banks and MasterCard owned by the banks, this is what they would do. They would come up with like, here's pricing. It always somehow finds a way of going up every year. The merchants hated it. The government wasn't too fond of it. So the IPOs of both MasterCard and Visa, I mean, these were very profitable entities once they reorganized such that they could actually control and keep their profits. It was primarily secondary. It was very, very little primary. It was the banks really selling their primary stakes in the company. And now what's really interesting is that Visa has a higher market cap, I believe, than any bank in the world. And it's kind of one of these weird cases of, it's almost like patricide, where Visa was birthed by Bank of America and now has a much, much higher market cap than Bank of America, has a much better market position than Bank of America because they are the central player. They are the central router where all commerce goes through, whereas Bank of America is one of end participants. So it's almost as if both of these network examples got to very quietly really without competition, mature their network effects over decades. And that ultimately when they went public, you have these two really unique entities in like the entire corporate sphere. Are there any other businesses that you can think of 
that have what I'll call a protocol effect like this, where they're almost just a pure information router that due to fragmentation around them, there's tons of banks on both sides. It doesn't make sense to build the technology to connect every bank to connect to every single other bank. Are there any analogs like this in the world? If you remember early on in the days of Twitter, and I know you use Twitter, I use Twitter, Twitter was more protocol and there were a bunch of Twitter clients. I mean, dozens of them. There was TweetDeck, and that was one that I used. And eventually Twitter realized, wait a minute, we can't serve ads as effectively. Like if we want to make this work, not only are we the centralized router, but we want to control the client experience on both sides. So or really one side, I mean, because I'm writing tweets, I'm reading tweets, I'm using the same product to really do that. But I mean, I would even say Twitter does have other clients where they probably charge usage fees or something like TweetDeck still is around, where there are products that help big merchants that have unhappy customers on Twitter. They're not just using the Twitter app. When United Airlines cancels a flight and 10,000 people or 200 people on the flight go complain, there's not like some random person in the call center that's just logging into Twitter. Like they're charging for access to the protocol. I agree. It's not as common because normally what you see is you don't have this like weird joint venture of like dozens of banks and you go for this structure. You say, if I'm building a network effect, classically like eBay network effect, open table network effect, it's always a centralized player that controls the experience and controls the economics. Actually, this was one of the things that I was getting to around pricing. Visa has a pricing committee. Somebody like Amazon will say, hey, wait a minute, it's not fair that we pay card not present transaction rates because our fraud rates are lower and yada, yada, yada. And Visa might be sympathetic to their arguments, but if Visa says, oh, it's a good point, we'll cut interchange for e-commerce transactions for trusted consumers to 1.7%, like that's going to really piss off the issuing banks. Because the issuing banks are like, what are you talking about? We just did a double cashback card to pay out 2%. Now you cut our rate to 1.7%. You can't do that. We're going to switch to MasterCard. So it actually makes improving the product and improving the experience so much harder because they don't control the end-to-end platform in the same way that you know you mentioned like American Express. American Express is what's known as a closed loop network where they control all, like they acquire the merchants and they acquire the customers directly. It's like one entity. You're just dealing with American Express through and through, whereas Visa and MasterCard are called open loop networks. It's a very rare business model because you'll only see that happen if you get the constituents from day one. I mean, maybe some of the markets are like this. Like if you look at, obviously everybody knows NASDAQ, but if you look at BATS, the better alternative trading system, that was a company where they kind of got started because they were able to get more high frequency flow from various traders. Those were equity owners in the actual exchange. I've seen this happen from time to time, but it's just a very, very hard playbook to operate on because normally network effects, they kind of start small, like Facebook starts small, but they control the client, they control the end-to-end experience. It's almost as if the model for both of these companies is like if you were an evil genius designing like a perfect competitive moat, you might design something like this, just deeply embedded, deeply hard to rip out. But nonetheless, it sort of begs the question of like, okay, maybe we can understand its moat, I think, as you described to me, by describing the ways in which it may be vulnerable. There's a couple of different ways we could do this. Before we get to that, I'd love to understand like, what is the business then in terms of new technology or existing technology being built? Like, is there a lot of new spend to improve or maintain this network? Because at its core, you know, it's been working kind of the same way, it seems like for a long, long time. What does the business itself look like? Revenues and expenses, like just at a basic level, what does the internals of the business look like? Yeah. So I worked at Visa. I mean, Visa bought my company. I wanted to answer this question every day. What do all these people do? 
It's a very, very simple business to operate. And I mean that as a compliment and not an insult. They need probably 10 people to keep the lights on. And if the lights are kept on, and it's actually kind of remarkable, like when was the last time they had an outage? Whereas all of these newfangled tech companies with amazing engineers, like they seem to go down all the time. Twitter has their fail whale and PayPal goes down and eBay goes down and Amazon goes down and then Netflix goes down. But like Visa and MasterCard do not go down. It's pretty remarkable that they've been able to pull that off. So it kind of goes back to there's not that much that they can really build or do. Product for Visa and MasterCard means a new branded logo or a new interchange table where like Visa Signature Card, what do you get from the Visa Signature Card? Well, if you go to Napa Valley pre-COVID, you got a free wine tasting at these two wineries. You get insurance in case you buy an expensive item that breaks, or you get if the price dropped when you bought something at Macy's, we'll reimburse you. It's a lot of these kind of breakage benefits that get included for consumers, but it's almost like classic enterprise sales where I'm a bank, let's say I'm Barclays. And actually, I remember this. When I first joined Visa as part of the acquisition, we had to do a little bit of a dog and pony show because Barclays was trying to determine, we've got this portfolio, like Barclays is behind the L.L. Bean card. And I know that because my wife has an L.L. Bean card, but they have a bunch of these affinity cards like L.L. Bean. And Barclays is like, they're up for renewal. It's like a three or five year renewal cycle. Do they go switch everybody to a MasterCard or do they keep on Visa? And maybe they might even split their portfolio. So it's half and half. And we have to say, like, here are all the great things that we do at Visa. We have chargeback technology. We have fraud technology. We have the wine tasting in Napa. We bought this amazing company that I started called TrialPay that provides offers to consumers. So you could say, hey, get $5 off at a non-competitive, like you get $5 off at Fandango and Fandango will pay for that or something. And then MasterCard goes with their own dog and pony show. And it's kind of this matrix where it's like, you've probably seen this if you've looked at marketing collateral when one company is selling, like, you know, SAP is selling versus Workday or something. It's like, hey, do they have on-premise cloud, blah, blah, blah. Like, yes, you always have a checkbox. And like the other guy always has an X. Amazing how that works. That's a lot of the product development is kind of stuff like that, because it's just really hard to change the protocol itself, often to the detriment of the market. Nobody knows what SKUs are being bought. That's crazy. Like, why do I have to get a paper receipt when I go buy something at Walmart? Why can't that just be added to my credit card bill? Well, the reason why is because there's literally, I mean, literally, technologically, no way for Walmart to send back to First Data, to send back to Visa, to send back to Capital One, to put in my app what items I bought at Walmart. And a lot of this is just based on how old this technology is, but also because For protocols, the hard thing is not actually improving the technology. Like I was talking to somebody about this for like, why do we have T plus two settlement for equities? And why isn't it T plus one or real time? And it's like, it's not a hard tech problem. It's just, you got to get everybody to agree. If five big parties don't agree, then nothing happens for 10 years. The longest that a merchant name can be in the Visa protocol is 20 characters. It's kind of crazy. It's like, well, I I don't know. My MacBook Pro that I'm calling you from has a terabyte of space. That could fit every merchant name in the world, even if the merchant name was 100 characters long. But that wasn't the case in 1960, when a megabyte probably cost a million dollars. So you have a lot of stuff like that that's very hard for them to change. Again, not because of incompetence, but just because as the protocol layer, they would have to get all of the banks to agree to go change this protocol. And then as a product layer, there's not that much that they can do Because it's like, oh, we want to do these five things that make the consumer experience like dramatically better. But wait a minute. Number one, we don't want to compete with the issuing banks because the issuing banks are how we get our business. If we pissed off all the issuing banks, we would go bankrupt. They wouldn't issue our cards. They'd issue our competitors' cards. So like, that's a bad idea. 
So that's kind of like innovator's dilemma, number one. But number two is there's no dilemma. It's just like, well, we don't control the customer. That's the issuing bank. So we can make tools for issuing banks that maybe they roll out to customers, but it's kind of a maybe. So if you think about just the business, is the vast majority of their revenue simply this, call it seven cents per transaction. And therefore, the way to think about Visa's top line is just that they're riding on not only transactions, but sort of the move from cash to credit as the primary means of exchanging value or paying for things. Is that where almost all their revenue comes from? Yeah, I mean, I would amend that to say cash to digital. Debit is a huge part of Visa's business. There are a lot of threats to credit, like buy now, pay letter is a threat to credit. It's not a threat to the eradication of cash. The pandemic has supercharged that. The number of places that I go that say cash is not allowed. Well, guess what? That's good for Visa. I mean, there are certain areas where they disproportionately benefit, like cross-border transactions are a huge, huge part. That's their most profitable segment. That's where, if you look at their recent financials, where people don't travel as much and therefore they don't do cross-border transactions, like that's bad for Visa and MasterCard. But all of this, anything that's ever bad that's ever happened to them has always been overshadowed in a good way by just the eradication of cash. It is this kind of like bridging transaction. And then, you know, when you have regulatory stuff that pops up, and interchange gets squeezed, normally Visa's fee doesn't get squeezed as much because they're not taking any kind of credit risk. It might get squeezed a little bit just because there's less pie to cut up. Mostly it's kind of taking away from the issuers because they're the ones that get the majority of the economics. So on the one hand, I would presume Visa has exceptionally high margins. When the tech doesn't have to be updated that often, you have this sort of incredible network effect that you sit on top of. You can have very high margins. How do you think about the thing that might fuel its growth though. So unlike a Walmart or a Costco, where you can just keep opening new stores, they don't seem to have this reinvestment mode that's possible and, and seem instead to be really subject to, and not that they're out of their control, but just like broader forces in the economy. Is that fair that we think of Visa simply as sort of like a tax on the growth of commerce, generally speaking? You could look at it as a tax. You could look at it as an enabler. That's how Visa would say, which is, you know, hey, look, we enable all these transactions to happen. Therefore, like the reason to justify a card not present being more expensive than card present is just it's classic value-based pricing. Like how much value is the internet and the economy getting versus how much are we taking? I think your point is valid, which is there's not that much that they can reinvest in besides buying back their own stock or something. I don't think it actually weakens the moat though. They have done things that are potentially well-intentioned, but didn't really make sense in retrospect, which is, should Visa have a wallet? PayPal's a wallet. We should have a wallet too. Should MasterCard have a wallet? Should American Express have a wallet? And I feel like companies often do things that make strategic sense, but where there's no market need. The great example that I like to use of this is, should Google have a social network? You know, Facebook's growing. It's like, of course they should. That's no brainer. Social networks are going to be big. Wait a minute. Facebook solved this problem in like 2007. They now shuttered Google Plus launched you know, thereafter. So you can't just build something because you should strategically have it. You should build something because, you know, A, you should strategically have it. Sure, only if it's key, the market actually desires it. Visa had this like ill-fated project called Visa Checkout, where they spent all this money getting merchants to go accept. Basically, you could pay with a Visa Checkout apparatus. You go to a website, just like you pay with PayPal. You go click there, you go pay with Visa checkout. But again, like, it just didn't solve a fundamental consumer need. And like PayPal solved that problem 20 years ago. So it was kind of hard for Visa to compete. So that having been said, does it make sense for them to do it? Sure. Like companies try and fail things all the time. Like I'm in the business of investing in companies that seem to fail all the time, but the ones that work, work really, really big. There are a lot of investments like that, that Visa can do too, but it's not as natural up to your point. Like let's go build a thousand new stores. A lot of it for me 
I do fintech stuff here in venture capital land, the biggest banks of 10 years from now might be non-banks that look like little tiny tech companies. Stripe was not a big company 10 years ago. Now it's a reasonably big company. The way that it got there was actually saying, hey, let's go sign up everybody in this little tech incubator called Y Combinator and get them processing cards with us, even though their volume is insignificant. And even though all of the big merchant acquirers just ignore them, he says, like, why would I want to go process payments for somebody that does two payments per year? That seems very boring. But if you get somebody like Instacart early, you're going to process a lot of payments for them in year eight, but you got to get them early. So I think that's actually probably the farming motion that both Visa and MasterCard have to get used to, which is so many companies are now monetizing via financial services. So you wouldn't be surprised to see a Lyft or an Uber offer a card to all of their drivers that displaces their bank. Why would they do that? Well, because they get to retain those drivers longer. And if the driver's low on money, they can say, hey, drive for us and make more money. There are all sorts of benefits to actually controlling the financial infrastructure. But you wouldn't think of Visa saying, okay, the way that we're going to get big is we're going to win the city deal, or we're going to win the chase deal. That's what they've historically done. It's not like, hey, let's go sign up 10,000 non-banks that might offer a card in the future that currently are very small. Anybody who works in you know, FP&A would find this job very challenging to say like, well, why would I do that? What's the size of the market? The answer is it doesn't really exist yet, but it might be big. That's probably something that they can get into in a much more meaningful way, as opposed to the zero-sum game that they play around jockeying for bank renewals, which is not zero sum in as much as the eradication of cash is floating all boats, but you can make it even more positive sum where it's like, hey, let's go get 10,000 brand new neobanks to go issue cards or 10,000 new like, I don't know, SaaS platforms that handle small business, something or other. Like there's a company called ShopMonkey that helps body shops run their business. Why not give every one of those body shops a card? Is it a Visa-issued card or a MasterCard-issued card? They should both be fighting over ShopMonkey, which is a motion that they're just not as used to. I'd love to understand Visa through the angles of things that may happen that affect it or its moat. The first is fragmentation. So we've already talked about how they're the beneficiary of their being, even from the earliest days, lots of different banks on both sides. If you're the centralized communication layer, fragmentation is good for you. Presumably concentration is then bad. So how do you think about that as a risk factor that sort of reveals something interesting about Visa? It's the biggest risk factor. And the reason why is going back to what I said before, which is the only thing that really drives Visa or MasterCard's business is issuer relationships. So Citi is the biggest issuer of MasterCards. If Citi said, screw you, MasterCard, we're going to Visa, I would not be surprised if MasterCard stock dropped by a very, very large double digit percent because of how big Citi is for MasterCard. And you could play the same scenario for Chase and Visa. So it's very, very important for them to hold on to those issuer relationships because, again, acquirers have to acquire the merchant and the merchant just wants to accept all cards and they don't want to be caught up in some game of chicken around negotiating rates. The reason why this is relevant is Chase renewed with Visa, but Chase is actually the biggest acquirer of online merchants. So Amazon.com, I believe, uses Chase Payment Tech, which is their payment acquiring division or merchant acquiring division for online payment processing. But wait a minute, Chase is also the biggest issuer of Visa cards in the US. The Amazon.com credit card is issued by Chase. Chase issues the Sapphire card. They have tens of millions of customers that actually have Chase cards. Why the heck am I, Chase, paying Visa to talk to myself? That doesn't really make sense. And the reason why is because it was in my contract. But when Visa says, all right, Chase, please renew with us again for the next 10 years and don't go to MasterCard, Chase is like, wait a minute, I have an idea. 
I don't want to pay you anything if I'm talking to myself, which is a pretty reasonable request if you think about it. This is how a lot of acquiring and issuing relationships work outside the US. So this is called an on us transaction. So it's perfectly easy to do. It's not that hard technically. It's just a contractual thing and then a very easy snippet of code to say, hey, 414720, go just send it to the other part of our building. So Mexico, for example, almost no transactions in Mexico go over Visa. The acquiring banks and the issuing banks are effectively one and the same. They just talk to each other. Now, Visa is very useful for this interoperating when you get into spaghetti land where it's like, okay, I live in Mexico, but now I went to the US and I'm shopping at a store in Texas. Well, that's not going to be an on us transaction. That's going to go over Visa rails and it's an FX transaction. So even better for Visa. But one of the dangers that Visa and MasterCard face long-term is that it's not so much the concentration, it's more of concentration where the issuing and acquiring is done by the same entity. The reason why that's relevant is because Visa doesn't really care about the acquirers. I mean, I'm sure they will say they care about them, but they don't care about them as much as they care about the issuers. If you're a big issuer and you've got a big acquiring division, you can easily push Visa to say, hey, I want what Chase had, which is their ChaseNet thing. I want that too. And I want to pay you nothing for it. And this is kind of actually how things work in China. The largest payment network in China, like old-fashioned non-QR code-based payment network is called China Union Pay, CUP. And CUP actually interoperates with Visa. So if you live in China and you have a China Union Pay card, which many people do, and you leave China and go buy something in Hong Kong or Japan or the United States, that's a Visa transaction. But when you go back in the country, then it's a China Union Pay transaction. And that's effectively one form. Again, I think Visa and MasterCard would still do well even under this situation. But if it turns out that there are only 10 major, major banks in the US and they all issue cards and they all acquire cards, you could actually see Visa seeing fewer and fewer transactions if it's kind of banks talking to themselves or even banks saying, hey, why don't I just route directly to this other bank and not pay Visa or anything? But if it's the long tail of like, hey, I'm visiting Jordan from Colombia, yeah, those two banks. Banco de Colombia isn't going to go connect with the Bank of Jordan directly. Too much work. You've previewed the second one, which is the role of regulation in different geographies. So we know that interchange fees are way lower outside the US than they are in. Maybe describe what's driving that and how international standards relative to the US's may play a role in the future story of Visa. If I remember correctly, one of the first countries to do this was Australia, which regulated interchange down to a little under 50 basis points. This was kind of the first test of like, well, what happens when you do this? It actually ended up being bad for consumers. Now, how could lower prices be bad for consumers? What kind of monopolist am I? Well, it turned out that it's bad for consumers because the rewards went away and it just ended up being a transfer of wealth between the big banks and the big merchants. Imagine I'm buying a Coke for a dollar. If I now buy that Coke for 99.5 cents, I don't really care about 0.5 cents, but you know who really cares about 0.5 cents is Walmart because they sell like a billion of those like every hour. So it's very, very hard to fix these problems of concentrated benefit and diffuse harm or figure out how you rejigger the shares, if you will. So what really happened was that rewards went away in Australia. Like that was very, very clear because there's no money to fund the rewards merchants basically kept more money, but it wasn't a huge amount of money, huge, at least on a per transaction basis. If you're buying something for $10,000, sure. Like maybe now as a consumer, it's like, well, 1.5% times 10,000 is real money. So I want to save money and I'm getting a lower price. All factors held constant. Whereas for like the $10 transaction, the $20 transaction, it's basically just rewards went away. But still it was popular, but 
go Google like Australian rewards credit card, you won't find that many, or at least not that many without fees. In fact, annual fees used to be a mainstay of credit cards in the US. For you to get a credit card without an annual fee, like that was kind of a rare thing. I forgot who was the first one to introduce the no annual fee credit card, but now like none of them in the US, very, very few of them have annual fees. Australia, a lot of them have annual fees now. And then Europe did the same thing, but even lower. Half the rate of Australia interchanges, although not for all cards, like a small business card, somehow that has a exempt regulatory regime so they can charge higher interchange there. But a lot of countries and regions, like EU being a whole region, said, yeah, interchange is too high. And look, and they're partially right. I mean, merchants, they hate this stuff. It is a tax on their commerce. Like in many cases, it's not enabling people to buy high-priced items that they otherwise couldn't afford, that they didn't have cash for. It's like, I'm just buying a tube of toothpaste at CVS for $4. And then like 10%, actually, this is one of the things that backfired in the US around regulations. So banks with over $10 billion of assets are subject to this Durban Amendment, which basically allows the Federal Reserve to set interchange for debit cards. Because they're like, look, this is a joke. You shouldn't be able to charge 2 or 3% because you're not extending credit you're not even forking over money. There's no float. You're just taking the money from the person's checking account and giving it to the merchant. So it's going to be five basis points, but plus 21 cents because there's a fixed fee. But wait a minute, if I buy a cup of coffee at Dunkin' Donuts for $2, this is a real issue. Like the QSRs and the quick serve restaurants, they hate this Durban thing because most of their customer base uses debit cards, not credit cards. A $2 transaction means like 10% plus goes away in the form of interchange. And that is the regulated form. So ironically, the non-regulated form is cheaper for them. Long-winded way of saying, like, there are a lot of countries that are experimenting with different regulatory regimes under the idea that it's better for merchants, which is largely true, but it ends up being a little bit worse for consumers, which I think was unexpected. You would not expect, again, that, that lowering prices would be an issue. But there's a second thing, which I would call geopolitical risk, which I actually think is much, much bigger. Because Interchange will be capped, but Visa will always figure out a way to make money. Issuing banks will make money, like fine. But the geopolitical thing, I think, is actually much bigger. I'll explain this by means of a story. So when I joined Visa, this was right after Vladimir Putin had annexed Crimea, which was once Ukraine, or maybe I'll get in trouble if I say once, still Ukraine, or depending on which map you're looking at, is either Ukraine or Russia. All these sanctions were passed against Russia, Russians, but in particular around this one geographically distinct area of Crimea. And if you were a Crimean consumer and you had a Sperbank, that's the biggest bank in Russia, you went to go use that card at a merchant in Crimea, it now wouldn't work because of US sanctions that were implemented targeting this part of Ukraine slash Russia. But there's a company called Visa based in San Francisco. They could just change that routing and say, nope, doesn't happen, gets rejected. And this is really dangerous. I'm not making a normative judgment here. I'm just saying like, if you're a country, you're an amoral country and you're like, okay, I got to make sure that some other country doesn't get me in trouble. Like think about OPEC, where I'm the US, I don't create a lot of oil or pump a lot of oil back then. didn't have an oil surplus. And then OPEC doesn't like me and then cuts off oil shipments to my country. And now people have to line up not for vaccines, but for gas and only odd days if your license plate starts with this or even days that like this was the 70s in the US. So what did we do? We built the strategic petroleum reserve so that the government could help solve some of this geopolitical risk. The economy wouldn't shut down if OPEC decided to cut off oil. But this is kind of like what we did to Russia. Again, I'm not making a right or wrong judgment here, but this is what happened 
when Crimea gets annexed and then the United States says, no more commerce for you in that region. And a lot of people don't use cash, they use cards. So if I'm Russia, I'm like, that's not a good idea. I got to go build my own network. But even if I'm France, I'm like, wait a minute, I don't know if I like that plan. I got to go build my own payment network as well. UK, I'm good allies with the US, but I got to go build my own payment network. And it just kind of shows to me that networks, they are the new strategic petroleum reserve. It's like China has Didi and the US had Uber and Uber was competing in China. Imagine that everybody in China was using Uber and only Uber. There was no Didi. Again, network effect business, Uber wins. And then nobody owns a car anymore in China. And then the president of the United States says, hey, yeah, Uber, we're going to shut off China. Like that would be a disaster for China, right? So again, it's the same kind of thing, but this is commerce. This is what's so interesting for me is like countries never used to have to fear this because it's like they are the sovereign, they print the money and the money is the only legal tender, but the legal tender now happens over a network and the network is controlled by a private entity that is potentially mediated by a government that's outside of your control. So I think that's actually a big thing for, again, there's nothing to do about this, except they might have to create wholly separate instances of the network that is under the purview and control of the country. Networks as a national security asset is incredibly interesting. We could probably spend an hour just talking about that. The one area of this that is, seems fascinating is, I love asking the question my friend Josh Wolf always asks, which is like, what sucks? And you've mentioned a few times that what sucks in this is that many kinds of merchants have bad experiences here. Let's just take Dunkin' Donuts as the example, or maybe Walmart. Any merchant is probably the one person here that says, maybe part of this really sucks. We wish it could just somehow be different. Does that represent an interesting opportunity in your mind to build something competitive that is in some way solving what sucks for merchants, generally speaking? Well, yes and no. I mean, this goes back to companies always do what strategically makes sense, but for which there's no market demand. And the merchants think it sucks and they're correct. It does. I think I told you this. I remember looking up the net income for Target and comparing it to their interchange fees. And basically, if they were able to like eliminate interchange, their after-tax profits would like double. I mean, it's crazy how important this is. If you have 90% margins, like whatever, you don't really care that much. If you have 2% net margins, like this is a huge amount of money. So therefore, you put a huge amount of resources into two things. One is suing them whenever possible. Visa and MasterCard have been sued so many times. They settled one of their last lawsuits for like $10 billion and like the stock went up. You know you're doing something right when you settle for only ten million. Right? So Walmart was the biggest rah-rah cheerleader anti-Visa Mastercard again, as they should be, because they pay more in interchange than anybody. And they tried introducing something called MCX, but it basically was meant to be this competing system. But the problem is again, like how do you get the consumers to use it? Does every merchant want to pay nothing? Yes, hundred percent hands are raised. Does any consumer want to like link their bank account to some newfangled thing that they don't really trust? And then why are they doing it? Well, they're doing it to get no rewards because you can get no rewards if the interchange is zero. So Target has something called the Target Red Card, and you get 5% cash back if you use the Target Red Card. And Target's very proud of this because they're not paying the 2% of Visa and MasterCard. Instead, they're paying 5%. Wait, wait, what? That's not good. If every one of their consumers had to be bribed with 5% cash back, that's not good. MCX was a complete disaster. PayPal's tried doing this offline as well. And just none of these things either solved the consumer pain point. I mean, consumer pain point is one way of looking at it, but like, nor did they appeal to consumer greed. 
if you don't appeal to solving pain or like satiating greed, it's just really hard to say that you have a solution. You have a solution to one side of the network, but just not the other side. How do you think about how some of the newest technologies and technology-based companies matter to Visa? I'm thinking here of Plaid, Stripe, cryptocurrency, this bucket of new technology challengers that are building businesses around the transfer of value. To what extent are these companies relevant and interesting in the Visa's future story? I would actually start with a different group of companies there. I think it's a good question, but I would start with Apple and Google as the most relevant ones there because once upon a time, people would carry their credit cards, their ID, their social security card in their, what I would call dead cow wallet. Uh, I got mine at my bar mitzvah. I still have it today. I got my eight cards in there. I got my like SSN. I got everything. But all of that is clearly moving to the phone. I don't think anybody would argue with that. It's just kind of a question of when, not if. And if it moves to the phone, then some weird stuff happens, which is, I don't know if you remember the Samuel L. Jackson commercials for Capital One, like what's in your wallet? Why would they spend tens of billions of dollars doing that? Well, because it wasn't even trying to get new people on Capital One. It was like subconsciously when I go to Chipotle and I have five cards in my dead cow wallet, why do I pull up my Capital One card? Which one is first? What is the dominant card? It's the power of the default. That kind of goes away because now it's software. I think Apple just alphabetizes it. So American Express is going to do great. So it just kind of changes the default paradigm that everybody in this space has to play by. And also you can imagine like instead of getting junk mail to go open up a new credit card, just like there's an app store for apps that use my phone, what do apps do? They rely on a system of permissions that are granted by the operating system. So when you download a new app, it's like, hey, can app XYZ access your contacts? Can it access your location? Can it access your photos? All photos or only some photos? Like this is all about permissioning. That's going to happen, I believe, with financial services as well. So, hey, I want to get a new card. What kind of card should I get? I don't know. I'm going to get Capital One, add it to my wallet, done right then and there. I'll make that the default. That's just a very, very different world. And then because Apple has a way of communicating, it can communicate with the payment terminal from Verifone. Like there actually is a way of potentially bypassing these networks. And you could also have it interoperate much more easily because you don't have to carry around like 15 different cards. Like this is the funny thing, right? Is that the reason why you have Visa and MasterCharge now MasterCard is because people were carrying around 20 different cards. One MasterCharge actually was originally, it's like all of the retailers of the 1960s it was like, hey, restaurants would have like a little separate tab. Why not have one card to unite them all? Well, now you can actually go back to a world where you have like 50 different cards. It's so easy to sign up like, hey, do I want to sign up for the Walmart card? Well, heck no, I get nothing out of it and it takes too long. Wait a minute, I just put an app on my phone and then it's there. And then yeah, I get 1% cash back right away or I get $5 off this item like immediately right now, but never get money off again. And that's my way of failing the marshmallow test, but Walmart winning it. Totally, I'll do that because it's easy to permission me into the system. So I think those two are actually by far, they're going to have the biggest impact on potentially changing things because there's an app store right now for apps that you play games and take pictures and do stuff like that. But I think there's a whole other set of apps and permissioning that really aren't even apps. They're more like financial products that you're going to discover, utilize, and sign up for on your phone. So that's the group that I think is going to have the biggest impact. But then, yeah, to your question, I mean, I think Stripe is extraordinarily interesting because they actually do issue cards as well. They are one of the biggest acquirers of merchants online in the world. If they become one of the biggest issuers of cards, yeah, they could just self-clear and self-settle and they don't have to pass anything through Visa and Visa will like them for it because they're like, hey, don't switch to MasterCard. Keep issuing your cards through our thing because those cards might get used to Chipotle that actually does pass through our network. So 
I think a lot of these that are able to become issuer and acquirer will have a much, much better shot of pulling off what Chase somewhat failed to pull off because Chase honestly should have run the table on online acquiring of merchants because they're like, hey, wait a minute, we're 15, 20% of all Visa cards in the entire country. Go switch from Stripe or Adyen or Braintree or any of these things that your first data, whatever, switch to us. And we're going to give you a 20% lower rate, which we can do because we will charge you nothing for a Chase transaction. They would have gotten all the major merchants. I don't know why they didn't do that, but they just didn't. Whereas Stripe, I have a lot of faith that they could. In the case of something like Plaid, which in my mind is this fascinating business, which maybe is the closest to this protocol effect that we talked about earlier, where it is sort of the centralized communication hub between financial services companies of all different kinds, including banks. Is a company like that potentially important in this ecosystem as well, even though it's very different from Stripe? It is. I mean, I'm an investor in Plaid. I certainly hope so. They don't really compete with Visa or MasterCard at all. I mean, they're much more around aggregation of data. I'm Robinhood. I want to have you move money over from Bank of America. How do I know how much money you have in your Bank of America account? Or maybe I'm Bank of America and I want to show you, I want to hold on to you as a customer. I want to show you, here are all of your other assets everywhere. How do I suck that in? The metaphor holds very well in that it's a network of other financial players, like Plaid sits in the middle, and then you've got Robinhood on both sides. You've got Robinhood as a reader and as a writer of data, but it's not in the transactional space at all. Like It's not something where it's like, I want to go pay for something. I know I'm going to log in and authenticate with my bank. Maybe that makes sense strategically, but it doesn't really solve a consumer value proposition going back to the thing that I mentioned before, which is why would I pay with my bank for my $2 coffee at Dunkin' Donuts? Dunkin' Donuts might want me to do that. And if they launch their own payment mechanism, then Plaid might hook up there, but it doesn't really solve a problem for me as a consumer. I want my rewards. I like to swipe or I've got this little app on my phone that I use, or I use my Apple wallet to just go double click and then pay. I think of them more as analogous to Visa, but for a non-commerce space, just for like banking information writ large. Final question before you know, a couple of closing thoughts, which is the obvious crypto question. So if what makes this so interesting is that it's a protocol business that's privately held, private for-profit corporation, and crypto is by definition a set of protocols, if you're rebuilding this from the ground up, would it look like an open protocol like crypto seems to offer? How do you think about crypto protocols and their role in this landscape going forward? I have a little tweet storm that I wrote on this a while ago where it's like, I think if you were to develop Visa from scratch today, and DHawk is actually still around and he's like 94 and he's a crypto fan, partially, again, not based on some kind of crazy speculation around this will go up or this will go down. It's because Visa was meant to be this chaotic thing that nobody could control. But a lawyer figured out how to rejigger that by turning it from a nonprofit to a for-profit. And it turns out that protocols trump lawyers. And like, what does this mean? It means that you don't want to have the information centrally stored anywhere. The problem was that all the information was centrally stored in Foster City, California, and that's where the router was. That's where VisaNet was located. So if you just take control of that, you can say, oh, okay, now we're a for-profit. We're going to charge everybody seven cents and like, you just got to go pay it. Versus if this were done from scratch, you would say, okay, all of the banks are nodes that host a ledger. Nobody can control it. No lawyer can figure out how to undo that. That's just how this would work. That's a very, very different line of conversation than like crypto will somehow supplant Visa, which again, I think it's like, you know, could it? I don't know. I think it would have to solve a real consumer problem. And right now, the fact that most crypto goes up in value and therefore is deflationary, at least today, 
goes up and down in value all the time. It's very, very hard for people to go want to spend a deflationary currency. There's a whole set of issues like that around like whether crypto is a threat to Visa. But if you were to rewind back to 1958 and say, okay, how do we turn this amazing network effect and have the thing in the middle not be worth more than the things that created it, namely the banks, the way to do that would be to have no centralization and have it be a purely decentralized protocol. And now we have the tools for that. But again, it's, it's 60 years too late for Visa. So my closing question to you is really kind of one lesson to take away, one as an investor and one as a business builder. You've been both uh, entrepreneur and investor. And in Visa, we have one of the most unique business stories ever, one of the most unique sustainable competitive advantages ever. So this may be a hard question, but maybe we'll start with the business hat on. As an entrepreneur studying Visa and having worked there yourself, what one business lesson do you take away from Visa? I think it's the value of group participation. Like a lot of times businesses that get to a network effect, they start off with some comically small example. Facebook started off with the comically small example of Harvard students. But once you really, really get going there and you've got like clear product market fit, then you concentrically, concentrically, concentrically expand. Visa did the same thing in a, in a very non-traditional way, but it's like, okay, Bank of America, we got Fresno, we got Florsheim shoes and everybody else. We're dominating commerce there. Then go to Fremont, then go out, go out, go out, go out. I think it's the story of honestly every network effect business, but it's also like kind of starting off with the right constituents because if you start too broad, you never get that network effect. And almost all of the newfangled attempts at building a payment network, it's like, number one, it didn't solve a problem. That's bad. And then number two, it went too broad. It's like, let's go boil the ocean. Like Google launched Google Checkout. Google's smart. They're going to dominate the world. They launched Google Checkout in 2006. Complete disaster. It had no purpose, didn't really solve a problem. Really smart people that worked on it. And like Google was smart to want to build a wallet and a checkout process, but it just was too broad and didn't have the kind of narrowed down scope. It's just not fun if you're a big company to do a narrowed down scope. Why would you ever do that? So I think it's like narrow your scope and expand concentrically is the lesson for me. And how about as an investor? And maybe it's the same version of the same lesson, but as an investor thinking about what Visa has taught you, anything different of note there that you would close with? It's kind of like a corollary to the Warren Buffettism of like when a management team known for brilliance meets a market known for disaster, it's the reputation of the market that remains intact. It's kind of the opposite here. It's like, it's not saying that the management team of Visa is bad, they're good. It's more of like, it is such a powerful network effect that it's just very, very hard to disrupt. So it's kind of more helpful to think about the long-term issues of, to me, it's like geopolitical risk, it's fragmentation versus concentration, as opposed to the ankle biters or like the, oh, PayPal launched offline, isn't that the death of Visa? It's like, no, what is their plan to maintain this in the next 10 years is probably the more relevant set of questions to ask, as opposed to like, who shipped a press release last week saying that they now have a potent challenger to Visa. If there is one resource you could point people to, if they're interested in studying Visa more, is there anyone that pops to mind? Yeah, there's a great book called A Piece of the Action. It's like 30 years old, but it's super, super relevant. It's by Jonas Serra. So that's the best one. D. Hawk actually wrote a book called One From Many. It kind of makes sense. Basically, is the summary of this podcast. One From Many, right? It's like you have one amazing company that came from many. And that's also really, really good. Those two would be the best. Well, Alex, this has been an absolute masterclass and such an interesting business. Thank you so much for breaking down Visa with us. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed this breakdown of Visa with Alex Rampell. 
The point that Alex made that resonated with me is that once you've built a standard way for lots of companies to communicate information with one another, a protocol, it's incredibly hard to change or disrupt. There are not many sustainable competitive advantages like a protocol effect. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 